This information is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information with regard to the subject matter covered. It is offered with the understanding that the presenters are not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services. If legal advice or other expert advice is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought. Well, good evening and welcome everyone. I am James Orr and I am joined tonight by a very, very special guest. IRS enrolled agent, whatever that means, Jason Bowman. Jason, welcome to the call. Hey, James. <laughs> what is, first of all, what is an IRS enrolled agent before we get started in this amazing class on property tax deductions? It means that I passed a three-part exam that the IRS administers on uh, uh, tax law uh, and passed a background check. And then they give me a fancy little card that I can laminate and a certificate to hang on the wall. Um, that says uh, I'm a tax expert. <laughs> so, so does that allow you to represent people in front of the IRS? Yeah, the, the, I was just telling you this before we, we got started. The majority of my or the entirety of my practice experience is in IRS collections representation. Um, I'm, I'm a one trick pony. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm not a tax return preparer. So when you when you asked me to do this class, I was like, yeah, I'll do the best I can, but um, uh, it's, it's definitely not an arena I'm an expert on by any stretch of the imagination. So I, I don't know if this is irony or whatever the definition is, but um, so you have me who knows like zero about tax. I don't even do my own taxes. And you, an IRS enrolled agent who specializes in uh, like uh, tax negotiations and representation. And uh, my CPA is on the call listening. So I'm sure <laughs> I'm going to get in all sorts of trouble here. Um, but uh, if you guys need a CPA, I can recommend a good one. So anyway, um, uh, rental property tax deductions. I'll get started with the class here. Some upcoming classes before we get started. Uh, next week, we're going to be teaching an amazing class. So this started with, I think Tammy sent me an email that basically was talking about how the value of college was sort of being debated in our kind of new COVID environment and a whole bunch of other stuff going on. And so it reminded me of but way back, a long time ago in college, when I was in college, I read uh, Walden. And I always wondered back then, you know, would it have been better to skip college, take that money and invest it? And so I did an entire class on this. Should you go to college or should you skip college and invest in real estate? And I made some pretty aggressive assumptions about you making a lot more money if you go to college at your job and you're able to invest a larger percentage of your income and a larger dollar amount of income. And it still is really interesting to see which one does better and how much better and which one gets you to financial independence earlier. So that's going to be a really, really good class. I, uh, I shared the results with uh, my buddy Royce and uh, he, he couldn't believe it. Actually. I think uh, he was very surprised to hear my numbers. He started questioning my assumptions because he didn't think it was true. So that's coming up next week, uh, January 13th. Then after that, we're going to be doing how to improve cash flow as a workshop. So I thought about this a while ago. I have these really great checklists for maximizing cash flow and minimizing expenses on rental property. And I thought to myself, why don't I, you know, go ahead and just send an email out to my clients and allow them to call in and one-on-one we'll go over, you know, how to reduce the expenses they have on their property and how to maximize cash flow. And I would sort of do it one-on-one with people. And then I was like, you know, I'm not sure I have the patience for doing you know, 10 of these or 20 of these or 30 of these calls where people want to go and work through this one-on-one. So I'm like, why don't I do it in aggregate uh, as a webinar? And then they can listen to it again and do it with the next property they want to do. And so it'll be a checklist per se of going through 
how to minimize your expenses, how to maximize cash flow on any property. And it's sort of like you apply it to your own property and situation, and then you can do it. And that's sort of the idea behind the workshop. Uh, then after that, the next week, that's, oh, by the way, the uh, How to Improve Cashflow Workshops on January 20th. And then the oversimplified financial independence with real estate. This is sort of like the alternative to putting all your stuff in the real estate financial planner and getting like real numbers. This is like how to do that in the, on the fly or like in the shower or when you're in the hot tub and you're thinking to yourself, you know, how many properties do I really need to retire? You know, how much money do I need to have invested in stocks and bonds and stuff like that? And I'll give you sort of all the rules of thumb and really rough math in order to get this. It's not going to be like super accurate where it's going to hit your exact day, but it'll give you a really good idea of how many properties you need and, and some rules of thumb that we use for calculating that. And so it'll, it'll give you an idea of like when you will achieve financial independence based on your numbers and stuff. So that's coming up on January 27th. And then because people keep asking me about this, you know, how do you do rent comps? How do you interpret the like rent-a-meter reports or, you know, Zillow rent reports in order to find out like what rent will be on your property? I'm going to do an entire class devoted just to diving in, interpreting those reports, figuring out what rents would be for your properties and estimating that. And so we'll spend uh, as much time as we need. I've got two hours blocked out. Who knows if it'll go that long? Maybe it'll go a little shorter, maybe it'll go a little longer. And then that will be that class. And then finally, coming up on February 10th, We've got pros and cons of every real estate investing strategy compared because I think I can get that done in two hours. <laughs> so here's how I think about this. I've been, I've been kind of thinking in my head, look, there's all these different ways to acquire properties. And so that's a list of, you know, you're going to acquire it by buying a property, 20% down, nomad, uh, creative financing subject to lease option as an option, you know, all these different ways to acquire properties. Then you have this middle ground of how long you're going to hold the property. And then at the end of it is all the different ways you can exit property. And so what we're going to think about is matching the most common ones of those up. And then I will go through, you know, this is the pro of this. This is the downside of doing this strategy. This is where this strategy would be good. This is where this strategy would be bad. And so I thought a lot of folks would find that to be interesting to see how different strategies would work and how they kind of perform in a variety of market conditions and a variety of your skill sets and your kind of like background and assets and stuff like that. So it's, I think it's going to be an interesting class. Um, if people want to tell me if they don't like that, I can always change it. We can kind of go from there, but I, I think it's going to be an interesting enough one that if people want to do it, they can do that. And on that note, if you do not like the classes that Jason is teaching, that James is teaching, then you can go on here and you can go ahead and say realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash suggest. And you can suggest which classes you would like to see us teach. You could vote on classes other people have suggested. You can uh, tell me I'd like to see this class taught because no one's ever taught it before. And if I am qualified, I will probably consider teaching that class. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how I got roped into teaching this class, but apparently it's a very popular topic and very timely. So, uh, but we'll, we'll kind of get through it. So uh, a couple pro tips, um, you guys can use the chat window. Please do uh, switch it to all panelists and attendees so that uh, other people can actually see what you're replying and they can read those and see exactly what you're doing there. Um, I know this should go without saying, but I, I have to say it because I had to kick people off before, but you're not allowed to advertise in the chat window. If you do, you'll be kicked off and banned from future classes. So uh, I have to say that because we've had to ban people which is unfortunate. 
So if you would, in the chat window, please say uh, who you are and where you're from, and then what is your best tax tip? Because maybe we'll get one that we don't have on our list and everyone can benefit from your expertise in doing that. And then if you do have any questions for Jason throughout the webinar, please use the chat interface so that he can actually, so that I can read it to him and he can answer it for you. So Jason, I like so- that, I, I like that first response. Yeah, what is that? Like that uh, Jason will, uh, that will be able to ask you? Oh, uh, 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 Hunter's tax tip, hire somebody else to do it for you. Oh yeah, that is a great response. <laughs> I totally agree. That's like my strategy. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. So Jason, where are you from and, and who are you? Uh, my name is Jason Bowman. I am from all over the place. Um, my driver's license says Rapid City, South Dakota, um, although I never visit there. Um, uh, lived in Fort Collins for about a decade. Uh, live out in Washington State now. Um, and I am a nomad. Nice. I love it. Looks like we have another uh, retired enrolled agent on. Maybe you know these guys. So I don't know. All right, cool. Uh, so we do have a podcast. If you want to listen to it, you can go to search for it on Google, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, tune in, um, go to realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash podcast to be able to listen to it. I've been adding some additional episodes of some things recently. So if you guys, uh, if you guys want to go check out some of those, uh, we can do that. All right, Jason, are you ready? Let's go. Let's do it. Rental property tax deductions. So Apparently, there's a difference between something called above the line versus below the line. Uh, Jason, what's the difference? And we'll get to more stuff in the future. Like I said earlier, I'm not a tax preparer. <laughs> <laughs> An above the line uh, deduction um, is, is a, a deduction that you get to take without itemizing your deductions on a Schedule A. Um, and above the line deductions are very important. Um, because of we live now, uh, at least temporarily, in an era of uh, significantly higher standard deductions, which means that a lot fewer people than before are itemizing. Um, and so anything that you can squeeze into an above the line deduction uh, when you don't otherwise itemize um, reduces your taxable income. Uh, so you need to look out for those. Are most people taking the standard deduction these days or are most people itemizing? Do you know? Uh, the, uh, the majority of people that were um, itemizing uh, are now taking the standard deduction because the, the standard deduction um, in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was, was adjusted to um, really make it so that your typical middle class, middle income person or family um, that did have standard uh, or itemized deductions that they wouldn't need to anymore. It was, it was intended theoretically as a simplification measure. Um, it had a lot of other fallout that is beyond the scope of today's class, but yeah, it, it moved a lot of people where into a position where they got no financial benefit from itemizing because the standard deduction is so big now. So basically, if you if the standard deduction is going to be bigger than what you would get if you took the time to itemize, you should just take the standard deduction because it's going to be higher. Okay, cool. And so we're going to talk about some of these different things that you have, and you'll point out if they're like above the line or below the line, or you have to itemize in order to get this benefit or, or what, right? Right. Okay, cool. All right. So uh, this, this wasn't intended to be in the presentation to begin with, uh, but 
because it wasn't really a deduction per se for rental property, but it comes up all the time. And, and this topic comes up specifically with nomads when I try to explain to people when you're nomading, you're buying a property, you're moving into the property as an owner occupant, you're living there for a year, sometimes a little bit more, then you're keeping the property moving into another one, like buying a new property and converting the previous one to a rental. And they say, oh yeah, yeah, you're taking, you're taking advantage of the, the tax-free sale of your primary residence. And I'm like, no, that's not what we're talking about with Nomad. It has nothing to do with it at all because with Nomad, we're keeping all the properties. And so we're not selling any of them I mean, you can sell them if you want to, but with the way that we're structuring Nomad, the way we're teaching it, people are moving into the properties, living there, then converting it to a rental. They're not selling at all. However, there is this tax-free sale of a primary residence. It's not really a tax deduction per se in rental properties. It must be your primary residence. It can't be a rental property that you're doing this with. And you must live there for two out of the last five years. So- Basically, if you live in a property for two years or more and you're going to go sell it, you can actually have a tax-free sale of your primary residence. And there are limits on this, right, Jason? It's like, it, it, basically, if you if you sell it, it's over whatever it is, 500K in, in gain or something like that if you're married. I don't know what the exact number is, but there's certain limits on it where anything above that does become taxable. Otherwise, you don't have to pay long-term capital gains on the sale of your property, which is at, what, I think the 15% tax rate? Is that about right? Most people. Okay, cool. So, so here's the question that comes up with this tax-free sale of the primary residence. If you actually buy a property, you live there for you know three years, then you move out and you convert it to a rental and you've had it for a rental for another two more years, can you still get this tax-free sale of a primary residence if you've lived there three years in a row and then you convert it to a rental for two years? Yes. Okay. So, so basically you have this thing where if you've lived there two out of the last five years, then you could still get that. So you could, in theory, convert a property to a rental and still not have a taxable gain, a capital gain on the property value going up. The, the timing is very, very important though. Okay. Um, I, I think most people are familiar with like, you know, uh, doing a 1031 exchange has very tight time windows that you have to hit. Yes. So it's not as, it's not like that with, with this, but you still have to hit the time window. The, the main one is, you know, if, if you live in a property, let's say you, you, you live in a property for, for two years as your yep. primary residence, um, but then you rent it out for three and a half years. Okay. All right. So now you're, and, and then you sell it. So now you're five and a half years from the date that you sold the property. The five-year period that, we, that this law talks about is based on the date of closing for when you sell, okay? And then looking okay. back five years. So when we look back five years, if you sell it at the five and a half year mark, have you now lived in it for two years? No. Of the last five? No. no. So d- does it completely go away or do you get a partial? It goes away. Okay, so you get zero then. Basically, yeah. you end up paying full capital gains tax on that particular property yeah. and depreciation recapture and all that other stuff on that. Now, just as I never thought of this before, but if you're if you had a property, you lived in there for two years, you rent it for two years, and you basically when you rented it, you're taking depreciation. Are you getting depreciation recapture on the two years that you rented it out? Yes. Okay. So basically, you have to pay the depreciation recapture, and and I we're going to cover depreciation next. So why don't we just do that, and then we'll come back to this one and talk about that that thing. If anyone has questions on this one, please let us know. Otherwise, um, I wanted to cover that as sort of like a bonus topic because it's not really a deduction. 
but, it, but always, the, it always comes up when we start talking about this. And especially with Nomad, where you're only in the property for one year, you never live in the property long enough to be able to get the capital gains exclusion. That, that's true if you do the one year. But let's right. say you did right. like an extended Nomad where you live sure. there for two years at a time. Sure. Then you could, in theory, at least do that. Although the the idea in my mind for Nomad and why we we don't typically recommend you try to take advantage of this particular strategy is we're trying to tell you acquire properties that you want to keep long term. Right. Get really, really good owner occupant financing on these properties and keep that financing forever. So the, the plan, in theory, at least, is acquire rentals using this strategy rather than buy a property, sell it, take some money maybe pay tax on it, maybe defer taxes down the road or have tax-free gain if it's a primary residence exemption like you're talking about, and then reinvesting in something else. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to tell you acquire long-term assets with Nomad when you're doing it. So, hey, I, I forgot to ask this question. What happens if you move back in for a few years? Can you do that? Yeah, yeah. So basically- there, you, It becomes can, more complicated. Um, there's some other things that you have to, to take into consideration, but yeah, you can do that. So like if somebody were to buy a rental property, rent it out for seven years, and then they're going to say, hey, listen, I have a lot of gain on this. I'm going to move back in for two years and then go and sell the property using this tax-free sale of a primary residence. Is that a way to actually have no taxes on that property? There is an anti-abuse provision uh, that was passed uh, relatively recently in tax years, maybe a decade ago or so, um, to limit that. Um, because too many people were taking advantage of it. Um, there's a pro rata rule that um, comes into effect. Um, okay, so it's not so, like you're going to get rid of all those gains. No, it's so be... it, becomes a, it becomes a partial. Okay, and do you think it's just based on what you know, is it, you think it's worthwhile to do that? It can be, yeah. Okay, yeah. all right, cool. Yeah. So basically, if someone has a question about this, they should go dig into the exact regs on this or talk to their CPA uh, before they go and move back in probably. Yeah. And what's crazy about some of this stuff is these laws, the tax laws can change. So you could really inconvenience yourself, move back into a property only to find out that a year after you move in or whatever it is, they decide to close this loophole or change the law. Right. Well, yeah. and, that's, and that's important in any type of, of tax planning. Um, and what I always tell people is you have to do your tax planning based on, this is just my personal opinion as a tax professional, you have to do your tax planning based on the laws as they exist right now. Um, because you can pull your hair out in frustration uh, trying to, to project ahead what politicians may or may not do um, as, as you know the Congress critters change seats and, and whoever's in the White House, blah, 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 right? You just can't predict what they will or won't do. The, the example I always use is, is it is fully within the, the capability of Congress to do away with the, um, the tax-free distributions in a Roth IRA. But, and a lot of people rely on that for their, their long-term retirement planning, right? That could go away. Yeah. It, it's totally possible. Um, and it wouldn't be a popular political thing, but it, it, they could do it. Um, and so, but do you worry about that right now? In my opinion, you don't. You, 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 you do your planning based on the tax laws as they exist now and hope for the best. Okay. All right, cool. Let's talk about depreciation, which is probably one of my favorite things. So um, depreciation, let me give you the layman's version of this and I'll kind of walk you through some math. And then if, if anyone has questions, please put it in the chat window. So, so here's what depreciation is. 
Um, the government basically says the building that you're buying as a rental property, not like owner occupant stuff, but the building you're buying as a rental property is going to degrade over time. It's not going to be worth, you know, five years from now, what it's worth today. It's going to, it's going to wear out in other words of, of saying that. So what they allow you to do for tax reasons is they allow you, once you buy a property, the value of the building that sits on the property, not the land, we have to exclude the land part of this purchase. So we have to do a calculation for that. But the value of the building or buildings on the property for residential properties can be depreciated over 27 and a half years. If it's a commercial building, it could be depreciated over 39 years. Okay. So most of the time for most of the real estate investors on this call, they're going to be using 27 and a half years for residential property. And they've got to subtract out the value of the land when they figure out their depreciation. And this only applies to rental properties. It does not apply to owner occupied properties. So the property that you live in, it does not apply to that until you convert it to a rental. Now, here's an interesting exception. So Jason, if you're going and you're renting out a room or two or three in your property, and it is both the property that you live in and also a property that is a rental. Can you depreciate part of the building? Yes. So you're talking about house hacking. Um, and I don't know how far into the weeds you want me to go on this, um, but there is a, uh, a formula basically to determine what percentage of um, the expenses on your primary residence you can then move over and deduct them on a schedule E. Now, earlier you, you talked about above the line and below the line yeah. deductions. This is not proper terminology, but okay. for all intents and purposes, anything that you can put on a schedule E is an above the line deduction. Okay. okay. So, so, so it reduces your income, in other words. Correct. Correct. Okay. So if you can put part, uh, a portion of your property taxes, um, a portion of your mortgage interest, a portion of your utilities, um, um, and, you know, real estate taxes and mortgage interest would normally be on your schedule A, but because the standard deduction is so high, you kind of lose those deductions. Well, if you house hack, you can shift some of those over to a schedule E. And so um, the, the IRS, what they say is that any acceptable method will suffice um, for determining the percentage of those expenses that you can actually deduct. Um, some have held up in tax court, some have not. Uh, the two predominant methods that um, they recommend um, are to simply take the um, percentage of the square footage of your home that is being rented out. So for example, if you're renting out one bedroom, it's 200 square feet, your entire house is 2000 square feet, then you're renting out 10% of your home. And so you put 10% of your mortgage interest, 10% of your property taxes, 10% of your property insurance, all that stuff onto a schedule E. The other way to do. Yeah. So I have a question about that. So uh, like if you're renting out a room, but they have use of the kitchen and the living room and, you know, the garage. Yep. So how do you do that percentage? Is it just the like exclusive area that they have? 
So the IRS prefers that it be based on the exclusive area that the person is renting, not the common areas. Okay. For things such as, again, mortgage interest, things that, that, are, that are expenses on the whole house. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll get to common area things here in a second. Um, there's another way of doing the calculation that they will fully support that can sometimes result in a higher percentage. Um, so it's important to know this one. Um, you count up each of the individual rooms in your home. Mm. Okay. And so um, if you, if you have say eight rooms in your home and your house is 2000 square feet um, and that 200 square foot bedroom would be 10% on a square footage basis. Uh, one divided by eight is what? 16%. It's 12.5. 12.5. Okay. See, I'm, I'm, I'm not a math guy. Uh, <laughs> um, bad accountant. Um, but uh so 12.5, um, I think is higher than 10. Yes. Um, and so you get a higher percentage by basing it on the room count. Okay. And is that a valid, like yeah, IRS yeah. acceptable way to do Correct. it? Correct. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's, even in the, it's even in the instructions for, for how they tell you to do it. So in other words, do it both ways and determine which is going to be better for you. Right. right. Okay. Awesome. Now back to the common area thing. Yeah. Okay. So um, the, the IRS doesn't really want you taking, um, you know, they don't want you splitting your living room in, in half and your kitchen in half um, for purposes of some, uh, some of the, the, more, the common expenses across the whole house. Uh, but when it comes to repairs, they've been okay with it. So, um, uh, for example, if you need to replace uh, carpet um, and you need to replace the carpet in your bedroom, the rented bedroom and say the living room. Okay. And let's just assume all the rooms are the same size. Um, and, and it's all $500 for each room. Well, the $500 that you spend to replace the carpet in your bedroom is not deductible in any way, shape or form. Okay. The carpet replacement in the bedroom of your roommate is 100% deductible because it's an expense specific to the rented portion of the home. Okay. Okay. Um, then they say that for certain expenses, for example, um, utilities, uh, they want that it's perfectly acceptable to split utilities, not based on that percentage method, but based on the occupants in the home. If there's two of you, you split the you know electric bill, water bill, et cetera, you split that 50-50, Okay. And, and deduct half of it, the IRS is okay with that. Okay. okay. Same on common area repairs. Now, what if the tenant, your roommate is paying for utilities? If you're like sort of saying, hey, you know, the electric bill is 120 bucks, you give me 60 bucks each month. It's not really a deduction then, right? Because you're getting $60 in income and you have a $60 expense that you're writing off. And so now it's really sort of a wash. Correct. Correct. Okay. The, the other, since you brought it up, the other uh, thing that I'll forget to mention if I don't now is the rent that you're getting from the tenant, that also has to go on the Schedule E as income. Okay. So it's not like you just get all these, these, these uh, deductions and it decreases your, your taxable income, you know, your AGI, but it, you also have to add in, obviously, the income that you're getting paid by the roommate. Okay. 
Hey, uh, I'm going to go answer some questions from the chat so we don't get too far off from wherever they were. Uh, so Stephen says, is the value of the building set at the purchase for a Nomad or the value at year one, which would have some appreciation? So um, I don't know the answer to that. Do you know, Jason, if yeah. it's is it purchase or is it year yeah. into so it? So when you have a change of use in, in real property, um, it's, it's based on um, either the, your adjusted basis in the property um, or the fair market value on the date of conversion of use, whichever is, I think it's whichever is lower. Okay. So like in layman's terms, cause I'm not a tax guy, which is probably a good thing for this particular call. So like a year later, the property value is worth more. Am I using the higher property value for like my nomad thing? If, if you're normally your, your basis in the property is what you paid for it. Okay. Um, plus not all, but some of your closing costs. Okay. Okay. Um, some, there's a list. Um, and so if you, if you buy the property for $300,000 and you have five grand in eligible, um, uh, 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 um, closing costs. costs. Yeah. Yeah. Then your basis, let's call it 305. Okay. okay. Um, but then on the date that you convert the house to a rental property, yep. let's say the fair market value is $350,000. Okay. Okay. Um, I, uh, again, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's the lesser of those two values. You, you, okay. So you're using the lower of the two for those. So yeah. if the property went up, you're still depreciating based on when you originally bought it. Right. right. Okay. All right. So that's the answer to it's that. It's basically your purchase price most of the time. Okay. And then Voita says, what if I have a condo overseas? Uh, as soon as you say overseas, I don't know if it applies to US tax code, but uh, I have a condo overseas and there was no indication in the selling contract what portion of the price was land and what was the building. Yeah, we don't even do that here in the States. Um, we don't know what the value of the land is at purchase. Um, I just asked Lisa to tell me what the, what, what the depreciation is for that thing. And I, I suspect she has some formula she uses or she looks up on the tax records, like what the value is for that. That's what I assume is going on. So um so continuing on with your question though, in property taxes documents, it's written 100% of the taxes is for the building and zero for the land. And yeah, because it's a condo, that might make sense to me because you don't have any land ownership in the condo, 100% of the price is for that. And uh, I'm not sure if that's what you're asking about or not. Can I depreciate 100% of the purchase price of the condo? Um, I'm not here to give you tax advice. So you should probably go check with a CPA, but maybe, I don't know. Jason, you want to comment on that without giving tax advice? Um, yeah, I am not your tax advisor. Okay. <laughs> this is for entertainment purposes only. Yeah. Um, but when you when you look at a condo, I mean, there's just not much dirt to attribute to the purchase price, right? Right. It's all um, like on land. It's on. It's in the air. So I, my understanding for condos is you depreciate the whole thing. But again, check with your CPA. And again, overseas may change everything here. I don't know the answer to that. Um, so Hunter says, historically, any idea how frequently lenders have changed the length of time that an owner-occupant is required to live in a property? Yeah, that's not really appropriate for this particular conversation. Um, I, I don't know, Hunter. But yeah, this is not that class either. So I'm not sure. Um, By the way, I, I just confirmed. I, I just looked it up. Uh, it is the lesser of... Um, your adjusted basis, AKA basically your purchase price um, or the fair market. So it's lesser of. And so almost in all cases, then we're probably using, unless the property value goes down, we're using the initial purchase price when yeah. you buy the property. Okay. 
Uh, so Lisa, who's CPA, says, keep in mind that if you depreciate your personal residence, it will affect the gain exclusion when you sell. That's a really good point, Lisa. So, so basically, if you say 10% of my property is uh, considered for my rental and you live there for three years and then you go to sell it, Remember that if you live there for two out of the last five years, you get to you know have a tax-free sale. Well, that's not true if you rented out part of your property. You have to exclude part of that property and say part of this was a rental. The rest of it was my home exclusion. And so you end up due paying taxes on the part that was a rental. And I'm sure there's a pretty simple formula for it. This is just the percentage you've been writing off, Jason, that you use. You get to be exempt for that. And you have to pay taxes on the other one, the long-term cap gains. Yeah, basically. Yeah. More or less. You know, it, it, it's also an issue, by the way, it's a very similar issue uh, for people that take the home office deduction. Yes. Um, that, I have that later. That they need to be aware of. Okay, good. Good. Yep. Yeah. So the home office and renting it out the property is the same issue with that sale. So it's not like you get to you. It's not like you get that for free. It's when you go to sell it, if you do have a gain on the property, you are paying the gain on the portion that you use for your home office or the portion that you use for rental. All right, so Jerry continues, I love 1031 investing, but you are getting like for like, meaning you're really investing into the same values that you sold at. Also, your heirs get the lion's share of the 1031 benefits because they get step-up basis on the property when they receive, especially in a peak market, much prefer OZ investing, opportunity zone uh, flexibility. So it doesn't sound like that was a question. Um, so Jerry says, in nomad investing, can you transfer the property to an LLC after a year, or do you have to keep it in your personal name? That's a really good question, Jerry. So the the, the basic answer is, um, if you move it into an LLC, you probably are violating the due on transfer, due on sale clause in your loan, and the lender can, at their option, choose to call the loan due, unless it's you know it doesn't have a due on sale or due on transfer clause. Um, do people do that? Yes, they do. Is there a risk that the lender can call you and say, you transferred ownership this, you know, we didn't loan it to the LLC. Yes, there's a possibility they do that. So really you should get advice from an attorney as to whether or not you feel comfortable with those risks of doing that and what the pros and cons are for doing it that way. So it's really a personal preference for that. Uh, Jonathan says, per that question, when buying a condo, you're not buying land, just the airspace and the interior walls. I don't think there's any impact on land. Yep, I think we determined that too. And Steve says, thanks. Okay, cool. So let me go through an example. On the condo, on the condo thing, I I could be wrong, but I think the underlying assumption there is that the HOA owns the land. I, I think that's the underlying assumption there. I, again, I could be wrong. Okay. Uh, so for depreciation, let's go through an example of how this works so that people understand it, because I think it's an important mathematical thing to to understand for people. So let's say you go buy a four hundred thousand dollar property, not a condo, and we assume that the land is valued at sixty thousand dollars. So the value of the building itself is $340,000. And you can take the value of the building and you can divide through by 27 and a half years. That's the depreciation period from the IRS. And that gives you one I'm sorry, $12,364 per year in what I refer to as gross depreciation benefit. So if you earned, if you're like a, a person earning $100,000 a year, then you're effectively only paying taxes as if you earned $87,636 because it's above the line deduction. And you basically say, okay, I was making a hundred. I get $12,364 in depreciation. So really I'm paying taxers, taxes on the 87,636. This could mean that you end up in a lower tax bracket. Okay. Doesn't always mean that depends on like where you are in that cutoff. Another way to think about the, um, 
the, the kind of depreciation is this. If you take the $12,364 and you multiply it by, we'll say your highest tax bracket, although that's not exactly correct. It'd be more conservative to say your effective tax rate or even more correct to actually break it down and say, well, this is the amount in my highest tax bracket and this was the amount in the next tax bracket. And maybe even if there was a little amount, this is the amount in the next tax bracket down. But just to get really rough math, you could say this amount times whatever my highest tax bracket was or my, my effective tax rate, is, which is more conservative, is how much less you are paying in taxes. So in Fort Collins, a $100,000 earning married couple in Fort Collins will pay about 19.76% in effective tax rate. So therefore, we would estimate, and this is purely an estimate, this will not go over with the IRS. This is not somebody putting your tax return. You want to do the actual math. But for like estimating, $12,364 times 19.76% means you're saving $2,443 saved in taxes for buying the rental, regardless of what happens elsewhere. So this is like a really, really rough way to figure out how much less you'd need to pay in taxes or how much you would get back on your tax return, assuming everything else was the same for you if you didn't own this rental or did. Okay, so one or the other. Uh, so a really, really rough rule of thumb when you're out in the field and you're thinking about buying properties is if you take 3% of the purchase price of a property, so this is a $400,000 property, 3% is $12,000. And if you, if, if you can't do the 3% in your head, ask your real estate agent. All real estate agents can multiply by 3% in their heads. That's, it has to do with how they get paid. So if, ask your real estate agent what 3% of this property is and they'll tell you exactly. Um, and that is the really rough gross depreciation amount for that property. So we just calculated it to be really be 12,364. The really rough rule of thumb version of that would be 12,000. They're close enough for figuring out that math, okay? Now, and I think Lisa brought this up a second ago, depreciation recapture at 25% when you sell. This is not something you get for free and the government doesn't ever want something back from you. What they're basically saying to you is, listen, we realize the value of this building is going down over time and we're gonna give you a tax break for it each year that you own the property. However, when you do sell the property, we wanna, we wanna get back some of that money that we gave you as a tax break. And so what they're gonna do is they're gonna charge you 25% of the total amount of depreciation that you took. Not 25% not of the tax break you got, 25% of the gross depreciation. So that $12,364 per year that you had. So they're gonna want that back as a tax at the sale. So if we're using that same $400,000 property above, the depreciation recapture after five years of taking that $12,364 a year uh, or $61,820 gross over that five-year period, that's how much it was, they're going to want to see 25% times that $61,000 and change or about $15,455 in taxes due if you sold it at five years, okay? That's what depreciation recapture is all about. It's always at that 25% tax rate. It doesn't matter if you're under that tax rate or you're over that tax rate, it's just that, okay? So that's what it is. And the other important thing about this is, it's not like you could say, that doesn't sound like a very good deal to me. I'm just going to opt out of taking depreciation so I don't have a depreciation recapture when I sell. You can't opt out. The government will assume that you took it, whether you did or not, so you might as well take it because the government will assume that when you sell.
Okay. There's, there's, a, there's a keyword and tricky phrase in, in the code that says depreciation allowed or allowable that this is based on. And yeah. so you're stuck with it. And so what I always recommend to people is if they haven't been taking it because they didn't want to deal with it or something, um, talk to your tax professional, um, go and amend uh, your, your, you can only amend, you can only amend the most recent three years of returns, but go amend those returns, um, and, and collect the refund, assuming you paid your taxes, uh, but collect the refund, um, from doing that. Okay. Cause they're going to charge it against you no matter what anyway. Yeah. So we do have some comments and questions coming in. So, um, so Jerry says, great answer on the LLC transfer. You're very welcome. Really good market information, not just legal suggestion, contract concern. I know you're not really giving legal advice or accounting advice. You're very welcome. And he says, thank you, James. You notice he didn't say thank you, Jason, by the way. Uh, Cody says, how does the depreciation formula change as you do capital improvements? That's a really good question. Do you know if you just get to write off the the improvements or you get to, oh yeah, I guess you get to depreciate the capital improvements based on whatever their lifespan is individually. Right. Yeah. You, it, it depends on, it depends on what it is. Um, if, if you're doing, it's different types of things have different lifespans. So uh, the whole building has 27 and a half years for residential property. So it depends on what the thing is. Um, uh, and we are going to cover part talk, of this. Yeah, we're going to talk. talk but, yeah, so this is another slide on that sort of stuff related. But to answer the question in a, in like a big term, let's say you do an addition to a house. Okay, the the addition to the house, or um, maybe a better example in Colorado would be a complete basement finish. Okay, and so the the property class of that is residential real property. It's still subject to the twenty seven and a half years. You have to track it separately. That improvement has its own 27 and a half year period. Really? So you're not doing like components and saying drywall has this. I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to this. I'm just asking. I'm, I'm saying if you're doing like a big project, like an addition or, yeah. or a basement finishing, yeah, you can still do the cost segregation study. Okay. Um, but the whole thing itself, the stuff that you can't accelerate under the cost seg study is real property 27 and a half years on its own timeline. Okay. Yeah. And I would advise you guys, we're, I, I definitely am not qualified to give you tax advice. I'm sort of pointing out the different tax things that you should go and talk to your CPA uh, accountant about and make sure you get really good advice about your specific situation. Cause you could be not including a really critical point of this stuff that changes exactly what we're saying and makes it completely 100% wrong. So please do not put this on your tax return and then you know write a letter to the IRS says, James says this was fine. I, I asked him on a webinar. I, that's not a good enough reason in my opinion. Uh, Cody goes on to say, also for the house tax scenario, once you move out, how is, it, how is that calculated now that you still calculate the 10% that was always a rental from its current year, depending on how long it was house hacked for, and then 90% was a primary. Did it start at year one of the 27.5 years? So my understanding is once you convert 100% of the house to a rental, you start taking 100% of the depreciation of the, of the full value of the property, if that's what you're asking. Uh, Jerry says, as to transfer the LLC concept, do you know if anyone goes to their lender and say, hey, my wife and I actually own the LLC, so there's really not a change. Would you therefore waive the due on sale contractual provision? Does that happen or does that 
work out. Um, so this is more of the question that comes up when we start talking about creative finance and uh, people sometimes put the lender on notice in quotes by sending them a letter stating that they've transferred it into a intervivos trust or that they're moving into an LLC and they claim, and I don't know if this has been proven in court, but if the lender doesn't respond then you've given them notice and if they don't act in a timely manner to start the process, but I don't know if I'd want to be on the opposite side of that discussion if a lender wants to try to you know, initiate foreclosure proceedings or call the loan due, um, you know, a couple of years later, because something has changed. And now they want to get rid of that loan for whatever reason. So uh, I've not heard of them doing that. If you if you had like a, if you're talking like a big bank, that's, you know, got a processing center, no one's going to do that. If you're talking like a small local community bank, and you could talk to a banker who knows what's going on, you can get them to do something, maybe. But yeah, I don't think that's going to be there. Um, Nora says depreciation recapture is your tax bracket up to 25% max. Uh, that is not my understanding. My understanding is it is 25% regardless of your individual tax bracket. No, if, um, if your individual tax bracket is lower, it's you pay it at your normal income tax rate. The 25% is a cap. Really? Yeah. I was not, I, I actually think that is not right. No, it is. I think it's fixed. No, I, I think, looked this up before. I don't think so. All right, we're going to have a debate. Maybe Lisa wants to chime in. Uh, Jay says, but if you're a high income earner, AGI, grow 50, you don't get the depreciation you just discussed. My understanding is that it gets sort of held and you get to take it later if your income drops below 150. Um, it's carried forward into your AGI drops or you sell. Correct. That's, that's my understanding as well. But again, not doing that. I'm not a tax guy. Huh. Uh, Robert says, if, you, if you're into 10 years of Nomad and the prop is highly appreciated, what is a good way to repurpose the equity? Uh, you can cash out refinance or sell it. I mean, those are pretty much two ways to repurpose equity. Uh, CC, interesting that the recapture of 15K is greater than the taxes saved 12K. Yep, I agree. They're getting their money back. Uh, Lisa says you can also do form 3115 and take all the depreciation, not just the last three years in case of someone not taking depreciation. So Jason, that was your comment if you want to, uh, someone that has not been taking it. That's a good point. Uh, David says, is there an income maximum where the depreciation write-off phases out? Yes. I think it's uh, 150 AGI, adjusted gross income. Uh, Jerry says, are there ways to take greater accelerated depreciation deductions? Yep, we're going to get that in the next slide. Uh, Lisa says, he is right. So I'm assuming you are right that it goes up to the 25% depreciation, which I've been doing this all wrong that whole time. But again, I'm not a tax guy. Yeah. Um, um, IRS Norris says 544. What's that? IRS publication 544. What is that? <laughs> uh, sale and other disposition of assets includes the, re the depreciation recapture commentary. It's your normal income tax rate up to 25%. Oh, oh, that's, that's interesting to me. Okay, good. That's bonus. How, so how Norris says, so, so do you need to recode something in REFP now? I do. Ooh. Yep. I will recode it. So I actually, it's user entered field, but I defaulted to 25. Ah, okay. So Nora says, I'm an EA2, learned it that way. Yep. Awesome. EA power. I was wrong. Uh, yeah, EA power. Again, I am not qualified. Uh, Jerry says, don't want to repeat myself, but you avoid recapture under the opportunity zone structure. Yep. Uh, CC says, when the depreciation caps at 150K, how do you get that back? So it doesn't cap at 150K. You can no longer take it, is my understanding 
when you have an income above $150,000 per year. And then apparently you keep track of it on a piece of paper somewhere. And if your income ever drops below the 150, then you can actually catch up and say, hey, I have all this depreciation I couldn't take five years ago. Now I qualify for it. Let me just max out the maximum amount that I can take to do it. So that's my understanding of how it, it works. Becomes exactly. a carry, it becomes a carry forward that you can hopefully use it before you die. Awesome. <laughs> Voita says, sorry if it was covered, but if I house hack having a duplex and taking depreciation only 75% the first year, did I lose the possibility to depreciate the 25% of the first year? Yep. Yeah. If, you, if you only had it for that one year, you no longer get that depreciation anymore. When you convert it to 100% to a rental, like you're going to rent that both sides 100%, then my understanding is you use that original 27 and a half year period, you can start taking the full amount. That's my understanding. Okay. So we talked about that. Any other questions on depreciation before we move forward? Just, just to answer um, that last question in, in a little bit clearer. Um, so the example you have there on the, on the screen, yep. the $12,364, if we just pretend that this $400,000 building is a, two, uh, a duplex, like his question uh, or her question, um, you take it, and if it both, du du both sides of the duplex are the same size, you know, 1,000 square feet here, 1,000 square feet here, then you take half of the $12,364 in that uh, first year that you're nomading it, then um, the next year you're still on the, uh, the original 27 and a half year trajectory, but now in the second year and forward, you get to take 100% of the $12,000, if that helps. Yep. Also, I, I noticed here with this new information about having, it's up to 25%, then the depreciation recapture after five years would then not be times 25%. It'd probably be times this 19.76. So um, yeah, that would be, it would actually be like you're giving back 100%. You're giving back the full amount that you depreciated if it's if your income is still the same when you sell it. Yeah. And you can arbitrage that in retirement, sell your properties in retirement when your income is lower and hopefully at a lower tax rate. You know, it's one way to play yeah. it. Or the thing you get penalized for is if your income has gone up and now you have this depreciation recapture is yeah. that that's even worse for you because you only got the benefit from whatever your income was at that time. Right. And now you're paying it on whatever your income is in the future. So that actually hurts. Yeah. But not as bad as it being 25% all the time, which is what I actually thought it was. So that's interesting. All right, cool. So acceleration depreciation, accelerate depreciation, cost segregation. So I think somebody was suggesting or had a question related to this, but um, we talked about the covering how you can depreciate the entire residential building over 27 and a half years, but other stuff you can depreciate faster if you really wanted to go through the extra effort of doing this, like appliances depreciate at a faster rate, carpets, at a, it's not 27 and a half years, furniture, it's not 27 and a half years. So you can go get an official study done. You can't just do this on your, on your own. You have to actually have a study done. And then based on the study and how much information, then you can go and actually have all this stuff done um, so that you can depreciate things faster, which means you get more of the depreciation benefit faster earlier. You can save more in your taxes upfront. Um, some CPAs will recommend you write off the entire cost of stuff like repairs in the first year instead of depreciating it over time. So if you're going in there and you're fixing something, 
on your property, you're not going to depreciate something like that. You're just going to write off the whole thing in year one. And there are rules about depreciation recapture here as well. So you want to check with your accountant CPA if you decide to go this route. Jason, you want to comment on this stuff? Because I know this is like a, a mini hobby of yours. Well, so, I mean, um, my, my degree is not in accounting, it's in engineering. Um, and most of the companies that are going to do this cost segregation study for you, they're, they're really, they're engineering and like architecture uh, 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 people. Um, and they also may probably have some CPAs uh, that, that work for them. So um, these studies, again, they're engineering studies, so they can be expensive, you know, in the several thousands of dollars. Um, they're, uh, do you mind if I mention the, the company? That... I'd, ra- I'd rather you not mention a specific okay. company, but so, you, there are like other ones, right? Yeah. So um, there are um, uh, software companies that will, for a single family residence, okay, not for anything more complicated than that, but for a few hundred dollars, you can purchase from them a software generated cost segregation study uh, that has held up in tax court uh, for your cost segregation. Okay. So they are, there are more affordable ways to do that for single family homes. Yeah. And so the idea is you spend a few hundred dollars and a, and a bunch of extra time in order to be able to depreciate individual things much faster rather than just the whole building at 27 and a half years, which will significantly increase how much depreciation you're getting, especially early on, um, which could help out with your taxes. Right. Yeah. And the way those software programs work, if you've ever gotten a homeowner's insurance quote, you know, and they ask you a bunch of questions about um, the things that are in your house, you know, the type of wiring and whether you have a fireplace, things like that. Um, where they're trying to, they're asking you those questions to estimate your rebuild cost of the property. Um, they're very similar questions to that, just in much greater detail. Um, so yeah. I, I think it's something a lot of people can do on their own. Um, and, and it's a tenth of the cost. Yeah. Um, I'm going to answer a question. So uh, Bathsheba says, do you, does anyone know a good CPA? And I'm going to go ahead and put in a link to my referral directory, which has my CPA's contact information on there. So I think that link should work. If that doesn't work, let me know. But you can go on there and get access to who my CPA is and their contact information. All right, cool. Who's oh, My CPA happens to be on the call too. So she's welcome to reach out to you directly or send you your contact information, but just want to make sure we got there. Uh, repairs and maintenance. Jason, what are repairs and maintenance on rental properties? So repairs and maintenance are things that are not capital improvements. <laughs> <laughs> this is like one of those circular like definitions. So what are capital improvements? There are things that are not repairs and maintenance. So, so this goes back to the basis conversation and, and relates to depreciation, right? Um, capital improvements are things that increase the value of the property uh, or that change the character of the property. Whereas repairs and maintenance are things that um, you do to the property in order to um, uh, keep it in its current value and its current livability. Is that a better definition? Yeah. So like adding an extra garage bay is a capital improvement. Correct. Like fixing an existing garage door that's now broken is a repair. Correct. Okay. So it's, it's sort of like that. Is, is there a gray area where some of these could be one way or another? Is that sort of like a problem? There, there are. 
Um, And and that's why the IRS created some of the safe harbors we're going to talk about. Okay. So if you made $100,000 in your income and you had $3,000 in repairs, because this gets subtracted off the top line, you're effectively paying tax on $97,000. And by the way, for my examples here, the $100,000 includes the rent you got on your properties. For those that don't, haven't figured that part of it out. Like you, that's not all your job. It's like 100K from your rents and also your job. And so in this case, you're paying tax on 97,000 as an example, if you had 3,000 repairs. This again, may place you in a lower tax bracket or at least reduce the amount you're paying in that highest tax bracket that you have there. Um, and Jason says, he's gonna talk about safe harbors next which uh, I have down here, uh, $2,500 is a safe harbor for repairs. Yeah, this, this, this uh, came up, actually, this might've been what prompted this class. This came up in a, a, a class Brian was teaching here a couple of months ago um, where he was talking about his CPA allowing him to, to take this $2,500 and he didn't know where it came from. And so I gave him the, the internal revenue code citation for it. Um, but it's, a very, very um, handy thing that the IRS gave us in 2017 um, that says that for the majority of us kind of small time landlords, um, you know, we're not running billion dollar rental property enterprises here. So um, we can kind of play a little bit looser with our accounting standards than a bigger company. What? Needs to, right? <laughs> what are you talking about? You can play looser with your accounting standards? Uh, just a little bit. Okay. And so what they said was, is that for any individual repair um, that you have done, if it's less than $2,500, they're going to kind of not even question whether or not that's a repair versus a capital improvement. And so you just deduct it. Okay. Okay. The, 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 the big thing about that though, is, is it's on a distinct uh, repair basis. So um, um, uh, let's say a water heater replacement and a toilet replacement. Um, do you think that those are the, are, are one repair or is that two repairs in your mind? I think that's two. Right. That's two repairs. But if they're done at the same time by the same plumbing company, they might send you one invoice to pay, mm-hmm. okay? And so if the toilet repair was say $1,000, that's a really nice toilet. Um, and then the water heater replacement was $2,000. Well, that's a $3,000 invoice. You need to insist that the plumbing company separate out and itemize the invoice on a per, uh, per job basis. Those are two separate jobs, even though they're on the same invoice. So you have a thousand dollar repair for the toilet and you have a two thousand dollar maintenance item for the water heater replacement both of which are necessary in order to maintain the livability of the property right so it's not it's not a capital improvement it's definitely maintenance one's a thousand dollars the other's two thousand you're still within the safe harbor even though the safe harbor doesn't matter the price of the property like if you're talking like a a $50,000 property you're buying in another market versus a, you know, $2 million property you're buying as a vacation rental, it's still $2,500 regardless of which one it is. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. There, there's a different, but related uh, safe Harbor. I don't know if you, I can't remember if you put it in the slides or not. I don't think I did. Cause you told me you could make four slides, but then didn't send them over. Oh, okay. Sorry. 
you um, remember what they were? Um, so there's there's a separate but related safe harbor, um, the, the small taxpayer rule, um, that the property has to be worth less than a million dollars. Okay. Um, in order for you to take advantage of of these safe harbors. Okay. Um, All right. So let's go ahead. So we've got some questions. Let's go to that. And then I think you also want to talk about limits you have per property and stuff. So yeah, that, that's the, the, ten, the, the million dollars is one of them. Okay. So I think you had another one here about 10K in repairs yeah. per property per yeah. year or something like that. All right. So here's the question though. Steve says, uh, for nomads, what tax deduction implications for repairs, improvements, et cetera, for rent ready, but occurs in the owner occupied year you live in it? And my understanding is there are none. Um, when you live in the property, that is considered expenses for as an owner occupant. If you need to do something after you've converted it to a rental, that's better to do it after it's been a rental, um, which I haven't thought this through, but I'm about to say something without having thinking it through, which could be dangerous. But um, yet another reason why you don't want to buy fixer upper properties, live there for a year and then convert them to a rental. Um, I think that there are some tax problems with that too, but Maybe. You know, th- th- this is something too that could have gone into your, um, you know, worst nomad mistakes class. It's a mistake that I've made more than once, um, okay. where the um, where I don't turn the property to a rental at the one year mark. I do it at like sixteen months or eighteen months, um, even though I know I'm going to nomad again. Well, the problem with doing that is that that extends by, you know, six months um, work that I'm doing on the house that I don't get to deduct. So when is it actually like, do you just arbitrarily set the date on paper or is it the first day you have a tenant in there? Is it when you have a signed lease? Is it when you move out? Like, when does it, when does the date change over? So the, the conversion date, and this, this applies for depreciation and other things as well. The conversion date is the date on which the property is the earliest of when it's rented or rentable. So if you make it available for rent on July 1st, then it's a rental property, even though, even if you don't get a tenant in until, you know, August 6th. I'm assuming you have to be moved out of the property by that July 1st. That would be an inherent implication. Yeah. Okay. But if, if, but it's important because if the water heater breaks on June 20th, and it's not a rental yet, that's your problem. If the water heater breaks on July 10th, you've made it available for rent. So it's a rental property now, then that's a deductible repair. Can you turn a property into a rental with a whole bunch of stuff that needs to be done, like a water heater that's not working? Um, Is that that gray? Is that like, don't do this sort of thing? It's definitely a gray area. There are, um, what I'll say is there are plenty of people that, um, they will, um, I've heard most of this from people that are doing the, the, the burr model where mm-hmm. they do like 98% of the work, but then they'll leave a few things that still need to be fixed once it's a rental, you know? So the, uh, because, uh, under the burr model, the tax treatment of the property before rental and after rental, um, can be, are, are different. Okay. Um, even if you're not moved in, like just burring, without like there, if you bought a property can, yeah there can be just some distinctions hmm. um uh, beyond the scope of what we're talking about here today but 
Um, so yeah, there's people that will leave repairs um, in order until it's a rental so that it can be deducted versus being part of the rehab, which has to be capitalized. Okay. Yeah. So there's right. definitely a gray area. All right. Andrew asked a question. What about getting the outsider of my, I'm assuming he says outside of my house repainted for 20K. So are there limits on how much you can spend per property? Like, yeah. So like I said earlier, there's, there's three separate uh, safe Harbor provisions here. And the, the third one, the small taxpayer safe Harbor um, interplays with the other two. Um, so it, the, the 10K limit, uh, technically it's the lesser of $10,000 or 2% of the basis in the property. Um, uh, so, um, you know, on like, if you only have $350,000 in basis in the property, then your cap per year on repairs is $7,000. Okay. It's basis like the basis when you purchase it, or is it basis that moves down as you depreciate the property? It's the same basis as you started depreciation with. Okay, so it's a start. Okay, correct. Um, so on a three, if your basis is three hundred and fifty thousand dollars, you're actually limited to only seven thousand dollars a year in repair that you can deduct under these safe harbors. Okay, and then also the property's got to be worth less than a million dollars. Your um, uh, what's the AGI limit? Don't quote me on this one. I think it's like 10 million a year or something like that. So it's really high. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So, so Andrew, I'm not sure what your question is, but my understanding is you probably can't expense the 20 K and paint. I think you probably will have to, um, actually whatever it is, capitalize that over a period of time. It, so. it, it's just, it's just too far above. Now, do people try it and do they get away with it? Sure. Um, yeah. um, I wouldn't. Yeah. And then Luke has questions, are appliance, appliances in rentals deductible? And I, I think deductible, I think is, is like a vague way of saying this, right? But because either it's a repair or it's a capital improvement, right? Like you're either buying a new fridge and you're you're capitalizing it over time, or it's under this safe harbor provision for a repair. If your refrigerator goes out and you're replacing it, that it might be, if it's under 2,500 bucks, it looks like you might be able to just write that off. Is that right? The thing is appliances are technically, they're, they're a defined depreciation category. Okay. And so you really should depreciate your appliances. Okay. So appliances, you should depreciate over that period of time, whatever it is, seven years or whatever the number yeah, I think is. They're, I'd have to look it up. I think they're five or seven year property. Okay. So there you go, Luke. Or ask your CPA or look, part, part of this is look this up, right? Like I'm trying to show you what is deductible, right. but you have to go look up your own specific stuff. Okay. Uh, but she says, thank you for referral list, James. Truly appreciate it. You're very welcome. Hunter says, that's super interesting. Uh, Cody says, so if you did have that 3K invoice, is it now CapEx or is it just more work to argue it was maintenance repair, but still possible to deduct it as a repair? My understanding is that you are no longer under that safe harbor thing by having it on the one invoice. And now you'll, you'll have to just document it. And Well, I, th- I think he was talking about the example I gave with the toilet and the water heater on the same invoice. Oh, okay. What you have to do, you have to have the contractor itemize the invoice. You want one line item for the toilet, another line item for, for the the water heater and, and break out the, the, the labor time on both of them. 
if you do that and each of those repairs is under the $2,500, then you're fine. Um, but if you just get one invoice for the whole lump sum job, um, I, I just did this at, at, at my place. It was, it was uh, like $2,900 for, for some dirt work. Um, um, if this had been a rental property, they didn't give me an itemized invoice. Um, part of it, about $500 of it was for actually a plumbing line repair. Um, so that plumbing line repair would have been uh, deductible if this was a rental property, whereas the dirt work, because it's work I'm doing on the land, that's not deductible at all. And so I wouldn't have gotten anything, but by asking them to itemize the invoice, I at least get the $500 deduction for the, the plumbing work. Does that make sense? Yep. You have, you have to, you got to insist that they itemize it. It's super important. So to answer Cody's question. So if you did have the 3K invoice, is it now CapEx or just more work to argue is maintenance repair, but still possible to deduct it as repair? I think it's still possible, but I think you need to document all this stuff. Right. What, to me, what it is, the, the, the answer to Cody's question is it's a phone call back to the plumber. Send me a new invoice. That's what yeah. it is. <laughs> and hopefully you can get that. Is that, so worth, Jay, that worth saving like five hundred or a thousand dollars on your taxes for one phone call to get a new invoice? I, I think it is probably. Jay says my renter says the gravel driveway is muddy in spots. I have twenty five tons of gravel delivered and spread for a thousand dollars versus a couple of bags to fill the muddy holes. A thousand dollar repair? Question mark. I don't. I don't know what gravel driveway. If that's a capital improvement or something that you have to depreciate. I, I don't know the answer to that. That's something for you and your CPA to discuss is my guess. I, th I think the issue there is going to be because that's on the land, not the building. Just like the dirt example I just gave. Mm. Yeah. Again, I, I don't know. Uh, CC, what if an, what if it's an owner occupant multifamily and the repair is done in other units? I suppose it's okay to deduct. Yeah. If you are, if it's the repair is done to the investment part of it, the rental part of it, uh, that is a business expense on the rental. If it's done to the owner occupant, the one that you live in, it is not um, valid for you to deduct that. And then I guess the question is, what if it's something that covers both like a, a roof over four units or something like that? I don't know. Do you know the answer to that one? I'm sorry. I, I was looking at something else. Yeah. Like if you have a roof on a four unit and you live in one of the four units. Oh, and you replace the entire roof. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and you're living in one. Yep. The IRS is going to say that the uh, that you need to allocate. What does that mean? So if it's a four if it's a four unit building, whole roof, seventy five percent goes to um, 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 uh, the the rental side. Twenty five percent is your problem. Yeah. And guys, the intention of this class was not to answer very specific questions for you. It was intended to give you like a list of things that are like deductible. And then for you to go talk to your CPA or go look up the actual IRS regs for whatever you're trying to do. Um, Cause I'm definitely not qualified to give you legal or accounting advice. Uh, but Siva says, does anyone know where to find a depreciation list for these appliances and items to repair and rehab? Um, and my understanding is that there are some really good resources in the IRS, which I'm going to send out here in a couple of days. Uh, but if Jason wants to name some off the thing, just type in irs.gov and whatever it is. Um, what is I it? will give you a link here. Go to page nine of this pub. Um, it, gives you, it gives you a short list. It's not everything. That's IRS publication 527. Um, um, this is something everybody should read anyway. 
Um, but you, you, page nine there gives you, it's not the complete makers uh, depreciation schedule, uh, but it's, it's a good start. Yeah. Thank you. And then Hunter says, so landscaping costs aren't deductible then. That is not my understanding. My understanding is that landscaping costs are deductible. Um, but again, these are questions for your CPA, not for me. I really don't know, but my understanding is that they are. There, there is a set of rules um, about it. So landscaping, um, things that are, that, that uh, I can't remember the wording, something about protecting the character of the house and curb appeal and maintaining value. Those things are attached to the building. Um, uh, but, and then there's another set of rules that determines that it's, that it's not part of the building. So I don't know about the driveway. Um, so the example I gave on my property, I had some, some, some dirt graded and stuff on the, on the, the back side of the property. It definitely, it's so far away from the house. It definitely would not have been, there's no way I could claim that's part of the building. So. And Corey says, at what point do you suggest using a tax professional to prepare your filings versus doing them yourself with under four properties? The cost difference can be significant. I suggest you get a professional do it right away. I agree. Uh, Dustin says, done to land, not deductible, like tree removal is not deductible. Um, my understanding is that that is not true. But again, you really should talk to your own CPA about specifics, because my understanding is that if it is a repair that is protecting the house or something like that, it is a repair expense. Joe says, if I take James and Jason to an amazing appreciation lunch and discuss real estate the entire time, is it deductible? We're getting to that. I'm uh, behind on my slides, but it is coming, Joe. And the answer is yes, it is deductible. Uh, Jason sends the links for the IRS stuff. Uh, Hunter says, gotcha, thanks. David says, even if the grading would prevent the house from being flooded by a runoff, my understanding is that that would be deductible. But again, talk to your CPA. Corey says, thank you. Joe says, James, could you please resend the referral list? Um, yeah, so let me uh, move on to some stuff and I will do that here at a breaking point. All right, cool. Utilities. Jason, you want to start utilities while I send this link to? Sure. The slide says utility expenses that you pay <laughs> on your rental properties are deductible, including gas, heating, trash removal, and sewer. So if, if your tenant, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, municipal services, uh, especially where they don't want the tenant to have the utilities in their name. Um, like water, sewer on, on a lot of my properties, I'm not allowed to, to ask my tenant to put them in their name. They have to stay in my name. Um, and so I have to uh, pay those. Those are deductible, okay? Those, those are deductible because I'm paying them. Um, however, um, where the distinction here comes in is whether you're not, um, some people will choose to include utilities and rent um, or to do utility bill back. Okay. So if you're, if you're including certain utilities in, in rent, um, and again, I don't know what's common in Northern Colorado, um, where my, I, I don't do this in any of my properties. Um, but I, but if let's say you include, um, uh, electric in the rent, uh, no matter how big the bill is, well, then you get to deduct that bill. Um, and that's just the end of the, the story. But if you're billing back to your tenants, you know, $75 this month, $150 next month, well, that is needs to be included in the income number that you're putting on your Schedule E um, if you're also taking the deduction. Now, everyone's going to say, well, if they're paying the exact amount that I'm being billed, isn't it a wash to zero? Theoretically, yes. Um, 
but what if, you know, maybe because of financial difficulties due to COVID, um, they're not, they're paying their rent, but they're not paying you back for the water bill. I have one tenant that's several months behind on their water bill. Um, and it's a big water bill every month, over $300 a month. Um, so they're behind on that. Um, I, I'm going to claim the deduction for, for 2020, um, but I don't have the income coming in to balance it off. Awesome. That's easy. Thank you for doing what are you, that. What are you laughing about? No, that's true. I'm laughing at Joe's comment. Uh, so. All right, cool. Home office deductions. So let's, and home office is very similar in a lot of ways to renting out part of your house. A part of the place where you live now becomes a business center. It becomes business real estate. Um, and so home office, just similar to what we discussed before, determine the percentage of your home that you're using for work or business, like your real estate investing business. And then you can actually deduct that, just like we talked about, if you rented out one room, it's the same idea. And Jason said before, you can count up the number of rooms and use that as a percentage, or you can count up the square footage of your, your home office itself, and then use that as a percentage of your home to do that. And my CPA gave official advice on this call and says, don't do the home office. It's just a pain and not worth paying me to calculate. So there you go. Um, And when you do sell your home, if you end up living in a property for a while and you sell your house, then you get to have that full deduction on the thing. Otherwise, they need to figure out what percentage you were using for your home office and do that. And it's just pain in the butt and probably not worth it. Um, If you you don't want to do the calculation, there's, there's yet another safe harbor that the IRS establishes for, for, for this. So yeah, it'll, it'll help with the calculation. I have no idea what it is. Oh, okay. I, I just know it exists. Um, so if, if your, your CPA is saying what James's CPA is saying, <laughs> don't make me calculate it, um, then talk to him or her about the, the safe harbor um, instead. Yeah. So you can deduct the percentage of your housing bill, like your utilities and stuff like that. If you're selling your primary residence, this percentage will reduce your home sale exemption by the same percentage. So if you thought you were getting $100,000 in gain tax-free, and but you had 10% of it as your home office, you no longer get that $100,000. You only get $90,000 of it. So that's an example there. So you end up paying about $1,500 back in long-term capital gains when you do that, is my understanding. Any questions on that? Um, Lisa says, yeah, don't do it. Okay. Josh says, if you use the HELOC to finish the basement, can you deduct the HELOC payment against your cash flow to reduce it? Are you saying you use the HELOC to improve a rental property? So you use the HELOC. I'm assuming he's talking about doing it on a rental. Um, can you deduct the HELOC payment against your cash flow to reduce it? Yeah, rental. Uh, my understanding is that if you used it for business purposes, then you can deduct the interest for business. Yeah. Uh, that is my understanding of how that works. Uh, Chris says, does it matter if you are a W-2 employee versus self-employed uh, for taking the home office deduction? Um, I, I don't know the answer to that one because I've yes. never really, that it doesn't one yeah, that one became a big deal. You, you may have seen some stuff in the news about it when a lot of uh, companies were going work from home um, uh, last year when, when the pandemic started. And um, a lot of those W-2 salaried employees were like, oh, I'm working from home now. Um, so I can claim the home office deduction um, uh, because I'm working from home full time, right? <clears throat> Wrong. 
um, you you must be in a trade or business uh, self-employed in order to be able to take that deduction. If you're an deb- example of that would be real estate investing. You, you could do it if you were a real estate investor and you had rental properties. Uh, Steven, you had raised your hand. Just go ahead and type your question into the chat window. You don't need to raise your hand for anything. Um, and Josh says, yes, rental. So we, I think we answered that already. Christian says, what if you are renting an apartment to love to live in and have a home office? Yeah, I still think you can yeah. set aside part of that as a business yeah. expense. It's my understanding. The, the, uh, thing is, than- the thing about the home office, it's got to be a dedicated room. Um, so like good, here, my home office, my, my home office is, I think this is technically the family room of this house. Um, uh, it's, it's a separate room. It's got a, it's got a door between here and the kitchen. I can completely isolate this room. It is the only thing I use this room for. Um, I don't have my big screen TV here. Um, so that I can watch, you know, figure skating um, while I'm working. I don't have my my PlayStation in here. I don't have the um, the ping pong table. This is a this is a, a dedicated office, right? And so you have that. That's a big cornerstone of the home office deduction. Most people use a separate bedroom, um, but it can't be like a corner of your bedroom. It's got to be the whole bedroom. Yep. So there you go. Uh, you know, Christian, I was just thinking about your question before, because you don't have the downside of when you sell because you're renting an apartment. I think if you're willing to do that work of setting aside, it is, and, and it really is dedicated work stuff. That seems like a, an easy one to do. It's easier when you rent for sure. Yeah. Uh, but you should buy a house instead. That's, that's actually, that's a bigger piece of tax advice for you. Um, go buy something. Uh, Joe says IRS simplified office deduction is to deduct $5 for every square foot of your home office up to $300, up to 300, I think, uh, square feet equals $1,500. So that's what um, he's claiming is the simplified one. Um, Claudia, I see you have your hand up. I would love to hear from you, but just please type in your chat window. Um, And then Steven says, is internet use in your home office and personally deductible in total or split somehow? Um, I don't know the answer to that. My understanding is if it is used by you personally, I don't know if you can split it. Can you split it, Jason? You, you can, yeah, you can split it. Um, um, yes, th- there are some rules. Talk to your CPA. <laughs> but, but the idea is that if you're using, you know, 10% for business and 90% for personal, you're not going to be able to deduct 100% of that. No, no. Okay. No. Uh, Chris, just thanks. Definitely will be buying soon. Awesome. Sounds good. Go Nomad. Go Nomad. Uh, okay, so we talked about all this. I think we covered everything on this slide already. All right. Uh, real estate investing related travel. Did I miss one? Did I miss a slide? No. Okay. Real estate investing related travel. Jason, you love to travel. So while you're checking on properties you own and looking at potential investments you're going to make, my understanding is you can deduct real estate related travel. You can. So this gets tricky for me because I own... I live in Washington, own properties in Utah and Colorado. So am I going to Greeley to check on my rental or am I going to, to visit James for a burrito or whatever? Um, that gets dicey, right? Um, so the, the big thing is the documentation piece, okay? Um, and um, uh, yeah, just keep good records of everything. Um, the, the, uh, you know, your mileage, the, the purpose of the visit to the property. Um, you know, uh, when I was, when I was still living in Colorado, every month or so I would do a flyby on, 
um, the rentals, the, the properties I wasn't living in, um, just to make sure they hadn't burned down, make sure there wasn't, you know, cars on blocks in the, in the front yard, things like that. Um, and that, you know, what, three, four miles, whatever, that's deductible mileage. Um, so my 1200 mile trip to visit James, I mean, check on my rentals, eh, a little bit more, more, uh, difficult to, to demonstrate that. So I had, I went to a, a class for real estate agents once and the guy kind of a sleazy guy, honestly, he basically said, you know, you, you go to take a trip to Vegas. If you go look at a rental property, when you're down there, you could write off the whole week. I'm like, I don't think it actually is that. Um, that it's my understanding that it has to be a reasonable percentage of your time that you're going. C- can you stop off and visit a friend? Maybe, but it's not like you spend five days with a friend in 15 minutes looking at a piece of property and that's deductible is my understanding. So, right. There were also changes to the way things used to kind of fly before the tax cuts and jobs act and, and the, the TCGA kind of squashed some of those, um, in regards to travel and meals and entertainment. Um, although meals are back, baby. Yeah. We're going to get to that in a second. Um, so have a couple questions coming up. Andrew says, can you use Google maps timeline as your documentation for travel? Um, as long as you also have some other way to like attach a, a note to it, some kind of marker or, or uh, I don't know, some, you have to, you have to document the purpose of the trip as well. Um, not just the date, time and mileage. So like you printed it out or something like that and then, or did a PDF sure. and made some notes to touch that. Honestly, there's apps that do this for you. If, yeah. if this is going to be a big thing for you, download an app. Yeah. And my CPA, Lisa says, document, 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 and maybe your CPA can get the 20% QBI deduction for your rentals. Yeah. We're, we're going to get to the 20% QBI here in a second. I think it's another slide. Uh, and Joseph, my understanding is that you cannot deduct travel for looking at properties, but you can after the purchase. Um, anybody else want to comment? Cause my understanding was that you could do it for looking at potential investments as well. You, you can do it for looking at potential investments. There's a slew of rules uh, about it. Again, um, it, it needs to be legitimate. That's, that's what it royal really boils down to. If I go to Vegas for a gambling trip and I look at a couple houses too, not going to fly. Yeah. Uh, Robert also says that uh, two other people that kind of teach tax asset protection stuff um, claim that it's not just looking at property. So I could be wrong in that. My understanding is that you can, but check with your CPA. And then Andrew says, I separately logged the purpose and activity in emails to my property manager. So that sounds reasonable too. Sounds reasonable. Meals. So Jason, this one's back, huh? For the next two years, apparently. And this is the newest tax thing that just hit, right? Like a couple weeks ago? Yeah, this was birthed like, uh, what are we at? 10 days ago. And uh, 100% of your business meals are now deductible for the next two years only. So you cannot deduct a meal if you're eating alone. Like in a local real estate market, if you're out looking at properties, you can't go ahead and just deduct a meal by yourself. But if you're having a meal with you and me and three other people and you're having a bunch of drinks and stuff like that, my understanding is you can deduct 100% of that. Yep. The, the idea behind it is to uh, give business to hard hit restaurants and other establishments. And Robert is trying to clarify, is that meals for 2021 and 2020 or 2022? So my understanding is 2021 and 2022. Correct. And again, uh, my CPA would definitely tell me you absolutely must keep very detailed records of every meal, what was discussed, who was there, and all that other stuff. You have to document all this stuff. And it can't be a 
at the end of the year, you sit down and you make up a log of all the stuff. It has to be, what's the word? Contemporaneous or contemporaneous yep. contemporaneous. So like, if you are there eating meals, you need to like that day or that week, like document all the stuff that you're supposed to do. You cannot just do this all at once at the end of the year. It's not allowed. <laughs> okay. Cody says, what if James orders us all pizza every week and we all eat together over zoom? Wow. That's a good question. You know what? I think I'd make the argument that that's perfectly okay. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. <laughs> Closing costs. So when you do buy a property, many of your acquisition costs are deductible when you buy it. So use your settlement statement or your closing disclosure in order to write off the things that you're supposed to do on your closing costs when you're buying properties. Is this closing costs for owner occupant or investment or both? Uh, investment. Investment. Uh, there and you like i mentioned earlier there are some things that will appear i still call it a hud one i know it's not the phraseology anymore but on your closing disclosure there are some items on there that are um uh, added to your uh basis uh there are other items that are deductible um when you are nomading there are, um, again, I'm not a return preparer, so I don't, these are some of the rules I don't know. Um, but if you pay, um, there's a distinction if you pay uh, points, uh, was it origination fees and um, uh, uh, upfront uh, mortgage insurance. Um, there are some different ways that those can be uh, deductible, even if it's an owner occupied property. Um, I don't know the rules about that, but I know that there's something about how they're treated differently. So but does that have to be, if you're like doing itemized deductions, it has to be, if you're doing the standard deduction, it might as well not bother. Yes, that would be itemized deductions. Yes. So if you're doing the standard deduction and you're doing owner occupant purchase, unless that pushes you over the edge from standard to itemized, you probably don't need to bother. If you're doing an investment property, it doesn't matter if you're standard deduction or you're itemizing, you right. can deduct this. Yeah. Correct. Uh, and then Michael says, are closing costs on the refive a rental deductible? My understanding is that they are 100% deductible. Is yep. the cost of you refining a loan on an investment? Yep. Uh, Steven says, what about refinance costs? Yep. My understanding is that those are deductible as well. Uh, they're deductible for investment property. If you are an owner occupant, it's the same thing. I think that if you're doing the refinance and you're itemizing, I think that could possibly be deductible. My understanding is that you... Unless, unless you're doing the itemization and you're taking the standard deduction, don't bother. Lisa says, closing costs are amortized over the life of the loan. There you go, Jason. So basically all those closing costs and stuff uh, are itemized over the loan. Nora says, for rental, closing costs, those sections of fees applicable to the lending portion are itemized over terminal loan. There you go. Look at this. Awesome. I, who needs to be knowledgeable about tax stuff? We got people on the line that are very knowledgeable. Well, well I think going to, to what Lisa and Nora said, um, it's, you know, the, there's the sections A, B, C, D, whatever on the, the closing disclosure yeah. there's, um, Nora said fees applicable to the lending, the financing portion. Those are the amortizable ones, but there's other ones. Your, your, um, your prepaids, um, the, the property taxes you're paying, things like that. Those are deductible because that's actually a current year tax. Yes. So um, different sections of the closing disclosure have different tax treatment. Yeah. So some of them are like their current expenses. They're not like a right. cost of doing right. a loan. That makes sense to me. Right. 
Um, and, j- and just so people know, this, someone says, hey, I can't see those responses from like Nora and Lisa. It's because they're they're just texting all panelists. Um, it's possibly because they're trying to be polite and not call us out to all panelists and attendees, but I, I really don't mind because I know that I, this is not my area of expertise. Same, same here. <laughs> so... Yeah, so Nora says the only the other sections or fees are added to the base of the home. Yep. Oh, yes. And prepaid are deductible. Yep, absolutely. Dan says, I can't see either. I think people forgot to select all panels attendees. Yes, that is true. And I think in this case, they may be trying to uh, like not call us out publicly when they're making corrections because they're they're both professionals. So uh, I have but I, to I, save face here. <laughs> this is a trade wreck. Doesn't matter. So Lisa says clarification. Closing costs will have some to be expensed in the year. Some are amortized and some are added to the basis. There we so go. there you go. That's the succinct way of saying it. <laughs> ah, there we go. Anyway, uh, so next one, property management costs. So if you're going to hire a property manager, the fees that you pay your property manager, the monthly percentage, any new tenant fees, any fees that are like passed along from the property manager to you, those are deductible as expenses. They basically come off the income is my understanding. So they're really lowering the amount of uh, taxes you're paying by reducing your income. Uh, tenant screening fees, credit reports, criminal background checks, eviction history reports, employment income verification, all those fees that you actually pay to somebody are also deductible. Realize though, if you are charging your tenant fees to like do a tenant screening application or something like that, that is income. So you need to then report income for that and then subtract out the expenses you have for actually running it. And the current law, my understanding of the tenant screening laws, I don't do my own property management. I hire a property manager to do it. But my understanding is that you cannot upcharge those fees anymore anyway. So if you are charging them $29, it has to be $29. It's not like you can charge them 29 and then you only pay 22. So it's not like you can make a profit on that. It's my understanding as well. Uh, So M says, that's true for both owner occupied and investment. I'm not sure what you're referring to specifically, M. Shaw, Shaw, but if you tell me specifically what you're referring to, I can try to verify um, what you're referring to there. Uh, Any questions on property management costs? None. The only thing I'll add to that, if you are using a property manager, read the statements that they send you. Timely. Yes. Don't wait till the end of the year to read them. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Property management. Okay. We just covered that. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Insurance premiums. So uh, any rental property insurance premiums you're paying. So all the fees you're paying to insure your property are deductible. They come off the income. Umbrella insurance premiums. If you are getting an umbrella insurance policy to protect yourself, that is also deductible. Any private mortgage insurance that you pay upfront and monthly, that is also deductible as an expense, it's my understanding. Um, And then rent default insurance. You can technically buy insurance that if your tenant no longer can pay the rent on the property that you get paid by the insurance company. It's like insurance for your tenant that really protects you. And that insurance policy premium that you pay is also deductible for that too. So M says, I meant if we were renting out rooms through property manager while we're occupying the house, yes, you can deduct property management fees, even if it's not an investment. That is my understanding. Yes. That, that is part of your business expenses for renting out that room. And you can deduct 100% of it. Um, it is not a pro rata share because that is a direct expense of you renting out that one room. Correct. It's uh, just like it's just like I said earlier. If you only replace the carpet for five hundred dollars in the tenant's bedroom, that full five hundred dollars is is expensable as a repair. 
if, if you have, if the only reason you have umbrella insurance is because you have a tenant living in your home, fully deductible. Are you, are you answering Rob's question? What's that? Uh, I'm not sure if you saw the question or not, but that's sort of what Rob was asking. Uh, yeah, it'd be, the, it'd be the same thing. So Rob, Rob basically says the umbrella that covers you personally is deductible, or do you have to have the apportion the, of the premium or something? I'm not sure he had a typo or something, but basically I think he's asking if you're getting an umbrella policy, do you have to like say this percentage is for business and this percentage is for personal? And my understanding and, and the way I think about it, and Lisa, who's my CPA, can correct me and tell me, James, you're going to get in trouble for saying that or for doing that. My understanding is I probably wouldn't have umbrella insurance policy if I wasn't a landlord. And so I'm going to write off 100% of the umbrella policy um, for, for buying the, for, for doing that. And that would be my stance in front of the IRS. Lisa can tell me if I'm going to get in trouble for saying that or not. I, I have the exact I exact same thing, same stance. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Dwayne says, are these deductible items are above the line? So yeah, insurance premiums, are my, my understanding is that they're all above the line because they're coming right off of the income you made from your rental properties as an expense on those. So yeah, everything yes. we're talking about here is, is on Schedule E. Um, and, and anything that you, any expense you put on Schedule E of your tax return um, has nothing to do with e whether you itemize deductions or not. So these are automatically all, um, it's, it's the wrong nomenclature, but for all intents and purposes, yes, they're, they're above the line deductions. Yep. And so let's see here. Brittany says, would you need to get rental insurance for a house that you're renting or would homeowners insurance be more appropriate? So if you are, if you're renting out hundred percent of the house, there is a special landlord insurance policy that you want to get from your insurance provider. It is different than an owner occupant insurance policy. If you are renting out just one room or multiple rooms in a house that you are currently living in, you need to disclose that to your insurance agent and find out what they recommend because part of it is needs to be a landlord policy and part of it needs to be your owner occupant policy. And I think that they make a distinction of that um, in their insurance policy, like that they write up for you. So tell your insurance agent what you're doing actually, and they will get you the right policy. And if you don't trust that your insurance agent is going to do that correctly, you need a different agent because they should know what they're doing. Uh, Rob says, so do you pay the umbrella from the business account or your personal account? I really don't even know where that money comes from, Rob. I, it, it, for all I know, it comes from our personal account. Um, it comes from the business. I really don't know. I, Jason may know better than I do for my own personal finances. And uh, Lisa probably knows better than I do. I don't, I don't look at that stuff. Yeah. I, I have a separate property management uh, checking account um, and it comes out of there, but it's a personal account. Um, I don't have like a separate, I know some people talk about this for asset protection. I don't have like a separate LLC. That's like my property management company. Um, that's just, you know, has money flowing through it. It comes out of a personal account. Um, and this is on your personal income tax return anyway. Um, so everything we're talking about with Schedule E, we're, we're, we're really talking about it from your, 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 the perspective of your personal income tax return. Yeah. So I don't know the answer for what I actually do. Uh, Brittany says, sorry to clarify, I meant would you need to get renter's insurance for a house or does it only apply to multiple unit buildings? Um, by, by renter's insurance, I'm assuming you mean a landlord policy for like you as the owner renters insurance to me means something different. 
So if you're asking, and she said, yes. So I'm assuming you mean you need to have a landlord policy. Yes. If you have a rental po- a rental property, you need to have a landlord policy for that property to make sure that you're covered. If your tenant starts a fire, you need to have the right policy so that your insurance policy covers the fire started by your tenant. So yes, you need to have a, a policy specific to that. But typically when someone says renter's insurance, I think of that as the insurance a tenant gets that protects their personal belongings in a property that they are renting. That's what I typically associate when I use the word renter insurance. So no, you would not need to buy that. Your tenants would need to buy that to protect their bed and their blankets and their clothes and their Xbox and everything else in their in their house, their their the the actual apartment or a home that they're renting from you to protect them if there was a fire. So if there's a fire in the house, your insurance on the building would replace the building itself and roof and kitchen and all that other stuff. It would not replace their personal belongings. So their clothes and their Xbox and their television does not get covered under your normal landlord insurance policy. They would need to have a separate renter's insurance is what I typically call it, um, that would cover their stuff. And that's usually in our lease that the tenant needs to have renter's insurance um, to do that. Does that clarify? Brittany, if not, let me know. All right, cool. Mortgage interest. So the mortgage interest on rental properties is an above the line deduction. It's an expense on the property. Interest on owner occupant properties is only deductible if you're itemizing it's increasingly rare with larger standard deductions. So most of the time, our owner-occupant property, we're not doing the interest deduction. And I'm pretty sure there are, there are some regulations and I don't know, like limitations on that. I don't take the thing. I, I do the standard deduction is my understanding. Uh, be careful for partial years for nomads on the mortgage interest. So if you're like, you know, living in a property for four months or six months or whatever it is, you need to do this calculation correctly. Um, Oh, so Lisa actually has some clarification here. So maybe Jason has a personal account for his rentals because he doesn't mind dealing with the IRS digging through the checking account. But since the IRS audits checking accounts, please, please, please at least have a separate checking account to receive your rental income and pay your rental expenses and not mingle it with your personal checking account. I don't, Lisa, you, you probably know better than I do. Do we have that? Is that, is that, is that well, just, just to clarify, that is what I do. I have a step, it, okay. it's, a, it's a checking account, it's a personal checking account, but it is a separate personal checking account that all my property management income and expenses run through. It's separate from my day-to-day living personal checking account, if that makes sense. So okay. I, I, do, I do have, that's how I do it. Okay, and Lisa tells me we do it right, so. Okay. All right, cool. So mortgage interest. So be careful with partial years, especially for nomads. You want to comment on that, Jason, about like the nomad special case with deducting yeah. mortgage interest? Yeah. So the big thing here is that in, in the year in which you convert a nomad property to a rental property, um, it's, it's almost never going to be on January 1st, right? right. Um, and so what you need to be aware of is you need to count the number of days that the, the, property was a primary residence and then count the number of days for that calendar year that the house was a rental property. And you'll, you'll, um, any of the, so the mortgage interest, real estate taxes, things like that, that are, um, were during the time that you lived in the nomad property, those go on your schedule A, your itemized deductions, if you're going to itemize or if you only take the standard deduction, then you lose them. Um, then the percentage of the year based on the number of days divided by 365 um, 
that percentage of your mortgage interest and real estate taxes, things like that for the entire year, those go on your schedule E. That's the quote unquote above the line deduction that we're talking about. And so the earlier in a calendar year in which you convert a property to a nomad, uh, to a rental property, um, the greater the percentage of your mortgage interest and property taxes, you'll actually be able to deduct for your tax return for that year. That's why when I was saying earlier, I've done this uh, three times now where I've stayed in the property too long. I, I, I knew I was going to buy the property. Heck, on two of them, I had already purchased the new property. It was just sitting vacant um, and, and I hadn't moved yet. And so I couldn't call the old house a rental yet because I hadn't moved out. And so I lost, you know, 30, 60 days of, of um, pro rata mortgage interest and, real, and uh, real estate tax deductions for that year because I made that mistake. All right. So we've got a couple of questions coming in. Does the nomad mortgage interest deduction start when the property is available for rent or yes. when rented? And I think we determined earlier it's when it's available for rent. Right. When you make it available for rent, that is the date that you convert it to a rental. Okay. Even if you don't have a tenant moving in that day. And Jay says, and if you want to get really crazy, the state of New York, North Carolina, I assume, requires the rental deposit to be in its own account. Don't forget to check your state laws. Yeah, so in Colorado, if you have a real estate license, then you are required to keep separate trust accounts, and it's really strict, and it doesn't matter if you're managing the properties yourself. It has to be kept all there. But if you are a regular landlord, not licensed real estate agent, you technically don't need to have your own account for it, although you absolutely 100% should. Keep it separated, keep them straight, keep a good record and all that other stuff. So it's not required, but you should here in Colorado. Andrew says, by rental days, do you mean available for rent days or days rented? Um, yes, both. <laughs> I, think, I think he's saying for like when it starts, and I think it's available for rent. Right. So I think that's the clarification there. Uh, Cece says, please, do you have a table that shows Schedule A versus Schedule E entries? I'm sure that's on the IRS website. Yeah, just Google the, the form. Just look for the PDF of the Schedule A and the Schedule E and then the actual form. And do irs.gov and then Schedule A and okay. irs.gov Schedule E because otherwise you risk going to a like slimy website that's trying to charge you to download a form that you should get for free from our government. Right. Um, and then Jerry says, how do you evidence that you have converted a nomad property from a personal home to a rental home? I think proof of advertising that you're advertising a property available for rent that day and um, doing stuff like that. I think that's probably going to be justification for that. Uh, and whenever you hire a property manager, you're going to execute a property management agreement um, retain a copy of that executed agreement because it'll have a start date. That's the date that I always use. Um, um, if you are not using a property manager, you're self-managing, um, then um, print out copies of your initial ads, or if you list it up on, on you know, a, a rental property website, um, print those out somewhere where the date shows and use that as proof. Uh, are property managers' fees tax deductible? Yep, absolutely, Luke. We just covered that one, I think, on the previous slide. They're all the fees that property manager charges you are deductible. How far behind are we? <laughs> uh, five more slides. Oh, okay. Accounting, legal, and other professional fees. So uh, all the fees I paid to Lisa are deductible. Bookkeeping and accounting fees, including software, if you decide to you know, purchase software to do that. Personal tax preparation expenses are not deductible. 
So the personal part of your return, my understanding is that that is not a deductible thing. Although Lisa, I have a business idea for you. What you should do is, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't tell you to up your fees, but <laughs> up your fees for the business ones and tell them that the personal one's free. Then that way they're all deductible, but don't up your fees, please. And don't do anything to me. Uh, so that's the idea. Personal tax preparation expenses are not deductible is my understanding. Attorney fees, legal paperwork like leases, eviction notices, property management contracts, um, all the contract and paperwork reviews you have done through an attorney, those are all deductible. Um, and this is specific for uh, investment stuff, all the investment property. If you're going to have like a, a contract reviewed for an owner-occupant property you're purchasing, even if it's for Nomad, I don't think that's deductible because it's owner-occupant that you're doing it first. Uh, any real estate agent fees, in most cases, the agent fees are paid by the seller. Um, so the seller is the one that gets to write off those deductions. You don't get to write them off because you didn't pay them directly. You basically bought the house, which you get to write off the purchase price of the house with all your deductions we previously discussed. And then the seller gets to write off the expenses they paid for the agent fees and stuff like that. Uh, landlord and property management fees we already talked about, including software, um, any software you buy for managing your properties, stuff like that, that's deductible. And then if you are paying for the real estate financial planning software, that is also deductible too. I cover that pretty well, Jason. Yeah. Any questions on it? Good job. All right, cool. Uh, any losses from casualty and theft? So businesses, for example, like rental property, uh, they can deduct theft or damage to rental property as a business expense. So if you have something stolen or someone does damage to your rental, that is a deductible loss. Um, Lisa says, without rentals, you would do your own tax return. <laughs> TurboTax is $75. So I just use 75 as personal and the rest is business. But a great idea, I'll increase my fees. <laughs> no, that's not what I said. Okay. Uh, so any loss you have from cash and theft, you can write those off as business expenses. And then property taxes. So for your rental properties, you can deduct 100% of the taxes you have on your rentals. You cannot deduct the personal ones is my understanding. Although there's some weird offset, right? Isn't there like if any taxes you pay somewhere else, you get an offset on your, maybe that's part of the itemized deductions. That's well, you can, you can deduct um, this was, this created a fervor in the media too um, in high property tax states um, like Texas and California, New Jersey, New York, where um, uh, because the tax cuts and jobs act put a $10,000 limitation um, on state and local tax uh, deductions. Okay. And so in really, really, really high uh, property tax states, you know, if you've got $15,000 annual property tax bill on your house in Houston, which is not uncommon, um, then, um, or, or in New York City or whatever, then um, you can only deduct $10,000 if you're itemizing. And so okay. that, that's what a lot of the hubbub was a few years ago. Still and this, this only applies to owner-occupant stuff, the investment Correct. stuff, rentals Correct. and stuff like that. There's no limit on that. Like it is what it is. Correct. If you have a rental property in Manhattan, you know, downtown and, and your property taxes are $75,000 a year, you deduct the entire $75,000 on that rental property. Yeah. And so Luke asked for a duplex living in one side, you could deduct 50% of the taxes. Is that correct? And that is my understanding. And, and um, you know, this is one of those weird things where if like you're in an unequal duplex where just, once yeah. one side is four times as large as the other one, right? Like it's a, it's a duplex where you have like a small mother-in-law quarter on the back and you're living in the mother-in-law quarter, then you probably want to do some type of ratio there. But if it's, if it's advantageous for you to do the 50, 50, then maybe you try to do the 50, 50. If it's like two units and you're trying to make the case, like the rooms, like Jason said earlier, then uh, I would probably do that. 
that's that's what I did with my very first Nomad property. It was a duplex. Um, the the front half was was a larger two bedroom uh, unit. I lived in the 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 one bedroom, four hundred square feet backside, and so it wasn't exactly two thirds, but it was pretty close to two thirds. Um, uh, was the 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 rental side and everything over there was deductible. It was great. All right, cool. Uh, so that's property taxes. Uh, Steven says, if I lease an office and truck for my rental business, are they deducted on Schedule C or a portion between the rental businesses? I don't know about that one. So what you're doing there, Stephen, is you're getting into um, the the arena where, because um, everything that we're talking about here in terms of property taxes, depreciation, this is all Schedule E stuff. Um, your rental property business. If you're going to have a separate business that's like a sole proprietorship that you're talking about on a Schedule C, um, that's a separate business. Maybe it's a property management business or it's a, a, a um, contracting business, even if you're your only customer. Okay, That's actually a separate business operation with its own tax stuff to deal with. Yeah, he says it's an LLC, but yeah, you basically have your separate business there and that would have all its own business deductions. That's perfectly that's not... okay, but that's perfectly acceptable. Plenty of people yeah. do that. Yeah. So trade tools, uh, if you have a phone specific for use with your uh, real estate investing business, tablets, computers, phone service, internet services, all those related things, those are deductible uh, for your real estate business, but you have to be really careful. They have to be legitimately used for that business. It's not like you can just get a phone that's your personal phone that you never use for business and you try to write that off as a business deduction. That's not copacetic. Um, and so you want to document and keep good records that these really are legitimate business expenses that you're using legitimately for your business. Is that it? Want anything else, Jason? And then license registration fees and taxes. So any rental licenses or registration fees for conducting a real estate investing business, for example, um, some short-term rental type things, Airbnb type fees, occupancy taxes, if you're doing short-term rentals, all those things are deductible. So just be aware and you can write all those things off. Um, in a lot of cases, you're not going to need extra rental licenses or registration fees like I can't think of if you're doing just straight up long-term, you know, year-long tenants and properties. I don't think there's any license or registration fees we have it here in Northern depends Colorado. depends on where you are. In um, Northern Colorado. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. So one of, one of my properties in Washington, it's inside the city of Bremerton, and they charge a $75 a year city landlord license if you have per rental property in the city limits. Yeah. So if you're in another state, definitely look that up. But my understanding is the cities that we primarily service here, Fort Collins, Loveland, Windsor, Greeley, I'm not aware of any rental licenses or registration fees you need for that for long-term rentals. If you're doing short-term rentals, all rules are off. All those comments are off. You might need to have occupancy taxes and short-term licenses and stuff for that. Oh, and also uh, if, if you're doing short-term rentals, VRBO, Airbnb, don't forget to register and pay sales tax, okay? Uh, hotel tax. Um, everywhere in the country has some sort of um, hotel tax for stays under 30 days. If you're doing short-term rentals, um, you need to register with your, with your, your state, um, collect those taxes from the short-term tenants, pay them. Um, you do not, do not want to get into trouble with your state for failure to pay sales taxes. In some states, well, we had somebody here from North Carolina, um, in some in, in states like North Carolina, they will issue a bench warrant for your arrest for failure to pay those sales taxes. 
Um, most states are not that aggressive, but if you're going to do short-term rentals, do not skip the sales taxes. Got to do it. Got to do it. Awesome. And then I think this is our penultimate slide. So the Ooh. business entity pass-through deduction, 20% uh, of rental business income from their taxable business income amount. Um, so Jason, you understand this better than I do. Why don't you take over and describe what it is? Well, again, I'm not a tax preparer, so in my understanding, this is, a, is actually fairly marginal. Um, but uh, what this really boils down to is um, this came out of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act as well, um, as several other things we've talked about here are. Uh, but basically, it creates a special deduction um, where there's a ton of qualifications, ton of qualifications. Um, but if you own a small business and a rental property enterprise, the IRS defined it as, yes, that is a small business, um, then you can deduct uh, up to 20% of the income from that business um, um, off of your adjusted gross income uh, to reduce your taxable income. So the, the 199A deduction, that's, that's what it's called, um, it reduces your, whatever your AGI is, it reduces it a little bit more to, to come to your final taxable income number on your tax return. Um, My understanding is that this is not just like a gimme. You automatically get it. No. You need to like, for real estate investors in particular, you need to log and have, is it 250 hours? It's, yeah. In, so this is another safe harbor. Okay. So there are other ways to demonstrate that you have a quote unquote rental property enterprise. Um, but the safe harbor that the IRS announced was that if you do at least 250 hours of work or the people that you manage, such as your contractors, your property manager, uh, your property manager, uh, <laughs> your, your property manager, um, the hours of work that they do on your behalf in terms of advertising the property for rent, collecting rents, signing leases, churning tenants, things that are related specifically to the rental activity. Um, 250 hours a year, boom, you can qualify for this, okay? Um, uh, the activities that you engage in to look for a new property to purchase, those hours don't count. Uh, the time that you put into securing financing doesn't count. The hours that you spend um, running scenarios inside real estate financial planner um, to shorten your path to fire, um, those financial planning activities don't count, unfortunately. Um, it has to be activities directly related to managing, maintaining the property, generating the rental income. Okay. That, that's the big, 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 big um, um, thing there. Um, so I'll make a, a couple comments. So um, because this is such a big deal and you can't just at the end of the year, make a list of all the stuff that you did. This is also has to be contemporaneous and done as you go. 
Um, we have created a form. It's free. You can go download it. Uh, realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash rental dash property dash log. I posted it into the chat window a second ago. You can download that. And it was intended to be like a month's form for you to document everything you did that month towards your properties. And if you are trying to hit your 250 hours, that means you need to do about 21 hours per month on every single one of those forms. So you need to figure out 21 hours of stuff that you did. And my CPAs. Uh, on the chat window saying it's 250 hours per property unless you file a special form to group them together. So if you're doing your own taxes, make sure you do your own form to group all these together. Otherwise, it's going to need to be 250 hours per property in order to get this safe harbor protection to do that. Um, and, and so you'll want to fill out this form. There is a Jason and I keep going back and forth as to whether or not we should list out the like qualified activities on this form so that you can just put the hours next to it. Or if we just sort of give you some guidance and then let you fill out whatever you want, there's pros and cons to both strategies. Um, so Jason and I are, are kind of talking about this, but you probably should document almost even more than what we have in this property log of like what you did on what property, when you did it, who did it. Um, so all that stuff should be on there. And don't wait till the end of the year because it's it's going to be a not allowed for you to go do 250 hours all at once. Um, and you're supposed to do this as you go. Um, and it's going to be a pain in the butt to do it too. So please do that. JC, you want to add anything more to that while I look through these questions? And Yeah. Um, actually, I want to go back to the, the thing about um, grouping your properties into um, a single uh, real estate enterprise. Um, for most small landlords uh, like I am, um, it's beneficial to do the grouping um, because then it's 250 hours for all the properties combined. Um, and so it's easier to meet the 250 hour rule. Um, and it's way, 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 way beyond the scope of anything we're going to talk about here. Um, but there are some tax planning opportunities that you lose once you make an election with the IRS to group all the individual properties together into one um, business entity uh, for federal tax purposes. Okay, so um, what you what I recommend that you do is that you talk to your tax professional about whether or not you're going to lose any other um, tax saving benefits that will come from grouping them together, or if you're better off doing the grouping and taking the 199A deduction. Okay, so if you own multiple properties. Um, talk to your own tax planner about that. Yeah. And so David asked the question, does maintenance done by your property manager count toward the 250 hours? And my understanding is that yes, it does. You need to document that work that was done that month. So right. definitely log it on the form um, and all the like tenant screening and stuff like that, that they do as well also counts. You know, uh, about a little over a year ago, we had a conversation with the property manager that you and I use in, in Colorado um, asking them if they would supply any documentation about the time they spent on the property. And their answer was no. Um, well, I've, I have new information on that. Oh, you do? Good, good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. And I'm, I'm not sure if it's universal or not, but Dustin says something similar. So um, my CPA had asked, any property managers tell you how much time they spend on your rental? And Dustin says, nope. I asked my property manager if they were supplying any documentation for hours spent to help me qualify for QBI. They said, huh? Yeah. So, and, and that's, that's, that's largely the response we've been getting. Um, 
the property manager I personally use and that we kind of push on for, you know, for the people that and, and Craig that use it as well. Um, they have since, because so many people after hearing me talk about it in class <laughs> and stuff, um, they finally uh, relented a little bit and they did what I consider to be the next best thing. They said they're, they're not able or willing, probably both, to tell me specifically for my property beyond just like, hey, we build you for these maintenance hours, but they're not going to tell me like how much they spent per tenant or tenant screening or something for any of my properties. They're just not tracking to that level. But what they did say is they said, hey, we spent this amount of time in aggregates and we have this number of properties that we're managing. And they just said, take this total number of hours and divide through by the number of properties. And you could figure out what the per property time that is spent to doing that. And I have an email from them that they sent me uh, for like last year or the year before, I forget which one it was. It was actually probably 20. This was, this conversation happened for 2019. 2019. Yeah. So like last, whatever it was. And so they sent me over that information and it was a bunch of stuff and they, they could tell you like per property, this is how much time we're spending to do that. Now, if you're not using the property manager we're doing if you, and, and you're having your own, you need to push really hard to get that done. And I think it's going to be a struggle. Um, to get a lot of that. So you're going to want to document it as you go. You know, you just gave a, a good path to it though. You know, you could go to your property manager. I never even thought about this. Um, I need to do this with my other property managers. Um, ask them what their 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 full-time equivalent um, staff is um, in, you know, 40 hours a week times the number of FTE, um, you know, across the year. Ask them how many units they manage divide it out like you could arrive at the number with some basic questions if they're willing to give you that yeah and you and i talked about this when before my property manager gave this to us i think there's a whole email thread between you and i about this particular topic uh dan goes on and says has anyone had success getting those numbers from their property manager and dan the answer is yes as i just described but it was not trivial and i think the only reason i was able to get it is because we asked in mass um, Andrew says, what counts as rental business income for this? Is this rental income minus expenses and depreciation? I don't know the answer to that. Anyway, yeah, it's, it's your net rental income. So again, if you're looking at the schedule E, it's the rent minus all the deductible expenses that we've been talking about for two hours, whatever that net number is on, on the bottom, um, added up across all your properties, um, 20% of that, it's more nuanced than that. Okay. Um, but in simple terms, that's, that's the gist of it. So 20% of your net rental income. Yeah. And CC says under the impression that if you have no property manager, for example, self-managing and below 150 K you're considered an active investor. That is not my understanding. Um, it, uh, correct. That, that, that's also a separate topic. I don't think we want to delve into here um, about active versus Passive, passive and material participation rules and all that fun stuff. Uh, yeah. the, the key to what you're, you're asking there, CC, is that the IRS sets very specific rules to determine whether or not you're active or passive and whether or not you have material participation. Uh, if you have material participation, then you can you get uh, a bigger um, passive activity loss limit that, you know, your, 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 your losses that you can deduct, um, if you're under the $150,000 threshold, that's what you're, you're getting at. Um, so that's a separate price conversation. <laughs> and that's different than this. 
Correct. Yeah. So those are two different topics. And right. there's what you said there, CC, is not my understanding of how that works either. And and these are all just like they're in the IRS regulations for when you fill out your tax return. It tells you you need to qualify to have this, 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 or this, or this, and this, and then it'll actually show you exactly what you need to qualify for that. Right. Yeah. By default, real estate investing is considered by the IRS to be a passive activity. Okay. Yeah. By default, you have to um, demonstrate otherwise. Yep. All right, let's finish up with the last slide. And the last slide really literally is um, related to this topic, but different is there's this whole separate bookkeeping and accounting class on how to keep track of all your expenses on your properties and send that over to your CPA at the end of the year and how you keep all the files for your properties and all this stuff. That's, I couldn't cover it in tonight as well, but if you go on the website or on the podcast, it's, it's, they're both there. So I just wanted to bring that to your attention. And that is the end, only six minutes over, so. So I uh, hope that was what you guys were hoping for. Um, I apologize for, uh, uh, I don't get a little hot headed there in the, in the middle with my, uh, I'm not answering specific tax questions. Tax questions so, oh man, because I don't feel qualified. So, uh, so I'm glad you guys all like that. Lisa says, nice job. Thank you. Appreciate that. Good stuff. Um, she, it's always a pleasure. Thank you guys both. You're very welcome. Thank you. Yep. You're very welcome. Awesome. Great insights. You're very welcome. That's all. It was good. I got a bunch more questions for my CPA now. Yes, that's exactly what we wanted. We wanted you to have some good CPA questions. Just like to give you an idea of like what to go seek out. Great class as always. You're very welcome. Thanks, Dan. Very welcome. Rob, thanks. Nathan, thank you. Margarita. Thank you. That's awesome. Cool. All right, guys. Well, that's all I got. Um, Jason's going to stick around just for one more hour to answer any tax questions you have. But after that, uh, he will need to run. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Jason's not sticking around for any tax questions. All right, guys, I got to go uh, catch up on the news. Just a lot of uh, unusual stuff going on tonight. So I'm going to go uh, check in with all that stuff. But thank you, everybody, for coming on. Uh, I'll try to get this recorded and published up to the podcast soon. So Jason. Thank you very much for coming on, sharing your knowledge. I definitely appreciate it. I definitely could not have done this class without you. So, Hey, thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. You're very, very welcome. I, I love geeking out about this stuff. You know that. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Andrew says, anyone put a contingency on their offers for armed insurrection? Whoa, I think that's too soon, <laughs> too, too, soon, soon. too soon. Too soon for that, oh, but, but maybe. Oh, man, crazy stuff. All right, guys. Thanks, everybody. Uh, have a great night. I will uh, talk to you all soon. Jason, thanks again. I'll uh, talk to you another time. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Nomad Real Estate Investing Podcast, produced by James Orr Real Estate Services in conjunction with the Northern Colorado Real Estate Investor Group. Help others find what you're already enjoying by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. For additional information, please visit us at jamesorr.com. For questions, suggestions, or other feedback, please email us at j-o-r-e-s at jamesorr.com.